0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins and prominent educational thought leader,
1: Adriana Duprat. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories.
0: Dr Darnell Fine is such an interesting person. He's a chalky, he's a middle school deputy principal, he's a facilitator of adult learning. He's worked and lectured and talked and conversed and educated all over the world. He is a recipient of the Learning for Justice Award for Excellence in Culturally Responsive Teaching. He was an emerging leader in 2021 for the ASCD. He's got a Bachelor's in African Studies and Education from Brown. He's a Teacher Support Specialist. He's EdD is in Educational Leadership from University of Southern California. I'm feeling supremely underqualified to talk to this remarkable person today about leadership and inclusivity and belonging and equity and diversity. I can't wait. Let's go.
1: Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor?
0: Thanks, Adriano, of course. We're proud to be partnered with The School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go.
1: Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And I don't know about you, Phil, but here in glorious Melbourne's west sunshine,
0: the skies are blue. Yes, of course they're blue because everyone's blue today, Adriana. (laughs) We're blue about both of your blue football teams that lost on the weekend.
1: but fortunately, fortunately, the Chelsea Football Club is only starting their season. They've just signed French international, Wesley Fofana. I'm very excited about our future. And enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our esteemed guest. Darnell, it's so wonderful to have you on Game Changes. I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, first, Phil, Adriano, thanks for having me. Really excited to chat with you and talk with you. I think I have different stories. And the story begins before I was even born. I come from two sides of my family. They come from oppression, come from thriving and surviving those systems of oppression. On one side of my family, my great, 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 great grandfather, Samuel Manning, somehow escaped slavery and escaped to Oklahoma. And that's where that side of my family began. And then on the other side of my family, my grandmother, Helena Fine, she was orphaned during the time where the Holocaust was occurring. And she escaped uh, Eastern Europe and found her way to the United States. And that side of my family began. So both come from survival. I'm a descendant of surviving and thriving in the face of oppression. And in systems that weren't set up for me to succeed. So within the United States, just as an as a Black student, I made it through K-12 through 12 public education. And when I got to university, I did study Africana studies, but there was also a focus on education. And I was secretly getting certified to teach because it was my calling, it was my passion. It was the only thing that I felt like I wanted to do. So I was I was a fellow to get my PhD, but I was secretly student teaching in the south side of Providence and I eventually revealed to all of my professors who thought I was going to be going to a doctorate program that I was going back to my hometown in Atlanta, Georgia to teach. Eventually I made my way to international schools with the uh, in the American School of uh, London or in London, I can't remember if it's of or in. And that's where I began my international teaching career. And after four years there, I made it here, home to Singapore, and where I've been a social studies teacher, then an instructional coach, and then a middle school deputy principal, which I'm I'm currently a middle school deputy principal.
1: Darnell, thank you very much for sharing with Phil and I, and of course, our audience, your story. And there is so much that we want to unpack in what you've just shared. There's great complexity but what i also hear and and i've got the privilege of looking at you right now i also hear and feel enormous hope yeah. in yeah. what you're sharing there's a great optimism in what you're sharing can you perhaps share with our audience when was there a moment in your your journey where the foundations of your history and your calling as a teacher where was that intersection most profound
2: yeah i find it interesting that you use the word hope and like my entire life has been grounded in critical hope, not the, the hokey pokey hope of just having the sense that everything is flowers and everything is blue skies, but critical hope and knowing that no situation that I'm experiencing was insurmountable in that I don't know if my circumstances growing up being an unhoused student or being a black student in public schools ever explicitly connected with me wanting to be a teacher but it did connect with education and the profound power of education to help me read the world around me to be able to critically analyze my circumstances I can go back to being a first grader and pinpointing when I had a critical lens about the world and how to navigate the world based on my circumstances Uh, So it was always there, that educative process of being able to think and read the world. I didn't learn to, well, I guess I was always a teacher and always engaging with sharing knowledge and sharing my insights in the world. But in regards to a formal profession, that didn't happen until 2006 when I went to work at a summer institute called Breakthrough Atlanta as a dean of student life. And that's when I saw like, hey, I, I needed to go back to my communities in Atlanta so that I could serve I could serve my community and I can share that educative process in the way that I've experienced it with my communities and help students not only be prepared for the future, but to shape the future as they saw fit and shape their future as they saw fit. Because my favorite teachers, the best the best teachers I've ever had, were co-constructors of knowledge with me and co-constructors of my future with me. And they asked me questions of, what do I want to fill in the classroom? But ultimately, who do I want to be? And when you start talking about who you want to be, that's grounded in that critical hope and those aspirations. So
1: there's something really interesting in what, what you're sharing with us today. There's two words that, that are coming up in my mind as you're speaking, and they are curiosity and consciousness. It's clear to me that Darnell Fine is a very curious being and is on you know an adventure, a life adventure to continue to, to evolve. And there's a deep dive element to curiosity and, and this discovery component. But for me, what's really profound in what you're sharing is the part about the consciousness, a deep consciousness not only about yourself and place, but your responsibility to the other. It's really beautiful to hear that, by the way. And I love how you phrased the explanation of your you entering into teaching as a calling because that is about it then ultimately a deep consciousness about the other there's there's that beautiful profound serviceness element to it as well that you touched upon so that leads me to my next question and a little bit more about your work around executive teams so much of your work with these executive teams is centered around fostering the emotional intelligence their resilience and their resourcefulness Mm -hmm. which executive teams would need to thrive through kind of instructional coaching how can we create more equitable and inclusive teams in our learning communities Mm -hmm. that are deeply conscious about the
2: other. Yeah, yeah. And I think when we talk about kind of instructional coaching and and executive coaching and instructional leadership, it's often through the lens of the academic standards. And that's important. It's it's important to create an equitable curriculum that is grounded in standards and benchmarks. But also learning is cultural. And oftentimes learning becomes like common sense reality or the reflection of the dominant culture. And we forget that everything is grounded in culture and nothing is politically uh, neutral and nothing is devoid of culture. And it's important that we recognize that there's always an orientation to the culture of power. In instructional coaching to become more equitable, we have to not only recognize that, but also introduce teachers as well as students to different cultural orientations, to different cultural perspectives. And that helps all of us become more culturally competent in the world. It's not enough simply to become biculturally competent or culturally competent or aware of diverse cultures. The instructional coaching as well as executive coaching also has to be for a purpose. Yeah. Like everything that we do, whether it's academic scholarly research or engaging in the educative process or schooling, has to have a purpose that's grounded in equity, justice for all. Mm -hmm. Like my overall societal goal is that our world is free from oppression Mm -hmm. and everyone can be their full selves with people who aren't like them. And if we pretend that those systems don't exist, we lose our purpose or the meaningful connection of ensuring that everyone is getting what they need in the world. So it's, it's three prong. It's the academic standards. Mm-hmm. It's becoming culturally competent. And it's recognizing those real life issues or systems at place that make serve as barriers to living a life free of oppression. And I can't pretend that those are my like tenets or components. That goes back to Gloria Latson-Billings' work. Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings' work around culturally relevant pedagogy and culturally relevant teaching. But it can't just be for students. We have to engage in that way for the teachers that we coach and the classroom educators that we coach and the leaders that we coach. Everything you've just shared that
1: leads me now into my next question before I hand it over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Phil Cummins. I want to read to you this quote from a person who once attended a workshop that you facilitated at the One School Summit in Boston. And the quote reads as this, for the first time I experienced what it might feel like to be a student of a culturally responsive classroom. It was an eye-opening experience and at first felt really challenging as if I forgot what I bring into a classroom space and the value I could add. I felt my mind craving a teacher who would present the answer and had to work actively against this desire. It was really thought-provoking and powerful to feel this and to begin to understand that fellows, PDs and school leaders may feel and experience as we transform. I love that. I love that, that reflection of a person who's come and encountered your gift. What does a culturally responsive classroom actually then look like in a lived practice? You know, period five on a Friday
2: afternoon, what does that look like? I, I want to know how you found that quote. Like I haven't seen <laughs> that's that's wild. Thank you for sharing that. It looks a lot of different ways. Emily Styles says half of the curriculum walks into the room when the students do. And, and I hold that near and dear to my heart that coachly responsive classrooms aren't simply disseminating knowledge to students and filling them up like they're empty vessels. It's getting to know who they are not just as learners, but as individuals, so that you can shape your curriculum to reflect their rich and diverse history. So it's it's the what. culturally Responsive Teaching is the what, and it's grounded in the experiences of our students who in international school settings, as well as uh, school settings domestically within the United States, are reflections of the rich, diverse histories of, of the host country. So there's that. It's also how you engage in classroom instruction. If I walk into a classroom and the classroom is 80 minutes, and you spend 70 of those minutes standing at the front of the room as the sage on the stage, that is not culturally responsive because that's not how all students learn. There are different modalities and different modes of expression to reach. The rich and diverse ways of being that, that students that students learn from or, or engage in. And that's reflected in their home culture. How many of our students are at home and, and engaging with friends and the parallel curriculum outside of school? And they're simply listening to their friends talk to them. No, it's a dialogical process. It's, it's engaging with each other. So if you, as the educator, standing at the front of the room simply lecturing to students, you're missing out on the opportunity to have students engaged in those dialogical encounters and that collaboration. It's also the way that we assess students. And, and I think this sometimes we, we sometimes have missed opportunities in the classroom when we have one size fits all assessments. If your standard is calling for students to share their interpretations of a book, do they have to do that through the lens of writing? Do we have to worship the written word? How might you sit down with that student and have a conversation? How might that student illustrate their knowledge in their reflections? And it's not just in a humanities course, it's also in the sciences. How might we decolonize the assessments in your lab reports in the science class? Or do we have to share our knowledge pen and paper uh, pen to paper, pencil to paper on a math test? Can there be other ways in which we demonstrate our knowledge in more performance-based, project-based ways? And it's involving students in the process at all levels, asking students what they want to learn, how they learn best in regards to teaching, and how they wish to share their knowledge. Thank you, Darnell. That point about sharing, I think,
0: is really, really important. I had a couple of questions I want to sort of dig into a little bit with you, which I think is about the way that we construct the shared hope for children. So as I'm listening to you and I'm hearing you talk about equity and justice for all and a life free from oppression, there's such inspiring concepts, but we're never going to have that. We're never going to live in a world where we have perfect equity and perfect justice, because that is not our world. We're never going to live where Every person is free from oppression. And yet we strive towards that, don't we? Because there's a gap. There's almost like a liminal space between the objective and the goal and the striving for it. How can we as educators teach our students how to navigate this liminal space? How how do we teach them how to manage the imperfection of the world and to hold on to a shared hope?
2: Yeah, and it's not about achieving perfection. Like, sometimes we have this perfectionist culture in schools where we have to get it right. And it's not about getting things right the first time, but it's about living in a space where we're adaptive and we're responsive to the needs in the moment and continuing to think about the generations that come after us. The world of schools and the world of today is so profoundly different than it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 10 years ago, or if we're thinking about the pandemic two and a half years ago, or whenever the pandemic started. So things shift and things change because culture is never static, it's dynamic. So we have to always live in the space where we're willing to shift our paradigms and be responsive to the kids that are in the room. Not because we're seeking to achieve perfection, but because we're always changing and being responsive to the people in the room. So yeah, the goal isn't perfection. Like, because of power dynamics and competing interests, no, we'll never be free of oppression. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to strive for that and name what our aspirations are so that we can have radical hope. Because with those radical ideas, you start to eventually shift and create a new reality. Even the status quo right now that exists was at one time a radical idea from someone's radical imagination. At one time, someone thought, what if we could have video conferences from around the world and we will call it Zoom? And someone thought, that's a radical idea. That will never happen. But here we are talking to each other in this virtual space. So everything that becomes common sense reality, becomes the way that the world is, starts off as a a hopeful idea. So if we can always live in that space where we're radically imagining something different, things will change. Will it be perfect for everyone? No. But we're not striving for perfection. We're striving to be adaptive. We're striving to be responsive. And even if those are small steps, that's okay because those small steps have a profound effect on the world in the future. There's a Simpsons episode. I think it was one of the, one of the Halloween episodes in The Simpsons. that yeah, Homer goes back in time and he steps on a butterfly And then it changes the future. If if something as small as stepping on a butterfly, I know it's fiction, but if something as small as stepping on a butterfly during the time where dinosaurs roamed the world can have that butterfly effect and change the, the world, our small adaptive steps in the classroom can have a profound effect on students, can have a profound effect on their lives, can have a profound effect on ourselves. So we have to be open to those small adaptive steps because we don't know the impact that they're going to have in the future.
0: And that's very much the adaptive expertise and the self-efficacy that here at Game Changes and our parent organisation, the School for Tomorrow, that we would say lies at the heart of how we educate students to thrive in the world today. Thank you for that very considered response. I want to take it a step further. I believe that our humanity is found in the diversity of our experience and the relationship between both our singularity and our plurality and an appreciation of our frailty, our strengths and our failures, our disappointments and our dreams. It's a story of yesterday, today and tomorrow. And where we strive to join up all our storylines and reach agreement and move forward together, I have a real problem with a lot of the philosophy that informs the critique of the status quo that flies around the world today, because it seems to me it's buried in a bleakness. It's buried in that notion that because we can't ever be perfectly aligned, then we can never be together, and we can never find sameness. I mean, it's it's what's frustrated me about post-structuralism for thirty years or more since I first came across it as a university student, as an undergraduate. Is it possible to find enough points of sameness so that we can we can bridge the apparent gulf between cultures, between people, between? experiences and find a way forward together and can we teach this to our kids can we teach them to find the positive in this rather than to look for the bleakness which so much of popular culture is informed
2: by yeah yeah i think definitely i think the issue isn't with sameness it's with who gets to define what the default is who gets to define what the normal is so yeah, there are some values that we have that can be common and experiences that we can have to be common. But so often the commonality and the sameness is defined by those who have the power and they minimize those divergent perspectives that also want to contribute to the literature about what is same or also want to contribute to what is universal. So if the people who are defining the universal, the default, the norm The sameness are traditionally the ones who have held the power, and we're not considering those different diverse perspectives. When we're coming up with a definition of what is same or what is common, we simply perpetuate normativity, and we simply perpetuate the perspectives of one and not all of us. So I don't think this is diametrically opposed. At all. When folks are wanting to have their diverse experiences recognized, they're wanting those diverse experiences to be included in the dominant narrative. So when folks are coming with their counter stories and saying that my experience is different, like I have a different perspective, how might you include that in your national narrative? They're not asking simply to be different. They're asking for a seat at the table. Because so often, historically, they've been excluded from that seat at the table. Uh, Most folks just, they want that commonality. If if folks are saying, hey, recognize my diversity, it's because the point in which they're diverging from has so often kept them at the margins. So yeah, I think the end goal is that we have a common humanity. The folks who are, are different or folks who are pushed to the margins, they didn't put themselves at the margins. The folks who are defining dominant reality and dominant culture created those systems. I was not the person who defined myself as a person of color. That came from dominant narratives and dominant cultures that created a system of race to marginalize and exclude me. But we can't get to the point where it's, hey, you shouldn't recognize race anymore. Like I would love not to be identified as a person of color. But the way that this world is set up, I have to experience what it means to be a person of color. Even if I don't want that. I would rather be talking about flowers. I would rather be talking about animals in in cat videos. But I experience a reality, my lived experience as a person of color in a system that continues to perpetuate racism doesn't allow me to be quote unquote normal when I step into a room.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's so elegantly put. I guess it's, as Hayden White, the great postmodern historian, might have put it, Cui Bono, you know, who benefits? If we're not looking at who benefits from the system, then I guess we're never going to get there. The people who have the status quo now are busy writing diversity, equity, and inclusion statements. They're busy making hires at a superficial level. They're busy trying to construct narratives that don't go to the heart of their school community they're trying to they're trying to wash away the sins of the past without examining all of these sorts of deep structures and thinking about the ways in which their schools really are constructed with a manifestation in exactly the way that you're describing there how do we help schools go beyond just having a diversity statement or a special event that shines a light on a particular group in the school community. What does it look like when inclusion and belonging are genuinely, authentically infused intentionally throughout school culture, in curriculum, in the content of learning, in hiring and promotion, in representation, in in leadership, and, and just in healthy relationships across generations and roles?
2: Yeah. My head of school says that diversity without equity, inclusion and belonging is simply a statistical exercise. That it's not about the diverse representation like we can't representation matters are us to death we have to move beyond simply diverse representation to moving to more the politics of liberation and equity and and what I mean by that is it's not enough to hire people from underrepresented groups it's not enough to have your policy statement or your diversity statement on the website if you're not going to move to certain actions that serve the liberation of people who are underrepresented and historically marginalized. So in curriculum, what does that look like? It looks like not just including foods, festivals, folklores, flags, and holidays in the curriculum. That's
0: an awful lot of F words there. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, lots lots (laughs) of F words. They, They call, some call them the superficial four Fs, but it's moving beyond just adding a few sprinkles of diversity into the curriculum, but also transforming the very structure of your curriculum. Is your curriculum inquiry-based? Like, yes, we're talking about diverse perspectives and we have diverse literature, but is your curriculum inquiry-based? Are you changing the structure of your curriculum to empower students to address social issues within the curriculum? So it has to go beyond representation. It has to go beyond diversity. And it has to change the very paradigm and structures of the curriculum. And it also has to go beyond a policy. It has to go to our actual leadership practices where we're engaging in deep reflection with our community members so that we can solve the problems that they need to solve. So yeah, it can't just be about representation. It can't just be about the diversity statement.
1: Thank you, Darnell. I've really enjoyed listening to you and Phil really unpack this really crucial conversation about how do we move from the, the statistical exercise of simply productivity within our school communities to a place of deep significance. I want to shift the conversation a little bit now and really focus on leaders and leadership. Earlier this year, Phil and I attended an event in Melbourne as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week. And it was entitled Reinventing Melbourne for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And it was hosted by an organisation called The Grid, a very new entity here in in Melbourne. It's really designed to to really rejuvenate Melbourne because we've been in in this hard lockdown, you know, for two years and and really cultivate the creativity and and the the possibility of our our diverse city. At a lot of these events in Australia, we have the ceremonial acknowledgement of country, yeah, about our First Nations people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can feel like that statistical kind of experience that you described a moment ago. Other times it feels deeply authentic. This particular time it was because we were very fortunate enough that it was an acknowledgement of country. It was actually a welcome to country by an Indigenous uh, First Nations individual named Professor Mark Rose, who's the the Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous Strategy and Innovation at Deakin University here in Melbourne. During his welcome to country, he spoke of the neighbouring Indigenous tribes that would regularly convene at the boundaries of their lands. And he described these as places of exchange, an opportunity to, as he described it, nudge at the paradigm, Mm -hmm. nudge at the status quo and the limits of our understanding. We're working with a community in South Australia about a project they're called Limitless and it's about a social entrepreneurship model of learning that focuses on social, cultural and environmental transformation and how do we invite young people into their agency to be this kind of civic participants in this space where they can nudge at the paradigm, where they can challenge the status quo, not only in their communities, but of course in their, in their schools as well. How do we help? I know this is a long run up, using a cricket analogy there, a long run up. How do we help leaders of systems in education and schools to have a preparedness to go to the boundaries, to enter into that exchange where they move from their comfort zone and invite them into their discomfort zone, placing the importance on the exchange of what's possible?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of things that that we can do. First, leaders don't know what they don't know. So first, it's becoming knowledgeable about the communities that you work with. And it's not just shifting the responsibility on those from those communities to do all of the educating. Uh, what books are you reading? What explorations or investigations are you going through to help you understand the language, the terminology that's being used by the communities that you want to work with? It's also teaching yourself like how to construct your own knowledge and develop your own skills and be metacognitive around your own biases that you're bringing before you even engage with these community members. So do you know how to critically self-reflect on your own knowledge gaps when you're interacting with diverse communities that may be at the boundary or at the margins? So there's that. There's there's knowledge and and some upskilling that needs to occur there. The other is more of the will to actually engage in this work. There needs to be Intrinsic motivation and interest to engage in this work. If you're simply doing it because you want, you're incentivized, that someone is paying you a certain amount of money to engage in the work of, of community building, that's not going to be sustainable. There needs to be something deep inside of you. Your why needs to be big enough related to this work. You also need to be willing to step in it and to make a mistake and not let your fear inhibit you actually engaging with communities that are different from your own community. So as a leader, you need to be willing to make mistakes and be imperfect and recognize that this is an imperfect process. So there's, there's that, there's having the motivation, the will to do it. But we also need to be aware of of actually changing the material and historical circumstances of the communities that you're working with. And a land acknowledgement is not enough, unless it's going to lead to changing the material circumstances of indigenous communities. And what I mean by that is like, all right, like funding, money, we fund what we value. And I know like throwing money at an issue is not going to to solve anything like per se, but it helps. So if if you're saying this land that we are on is land of indigenous communities, how might you redistribute some of the resources, the time resources? How might you reallocate some of your personnel to serve the needs of, of indigenous communities? How might you do all of that? So there's that. Phil, I do think the policy statements for diversity are important because it state's intentions. But we yeah. also need to be explicit about our processes and our practices. So it's not enough to have a statement. You have to have clear protocols, procedures, processes of how you engage in making those transparent as a leader. And then there's also the culture of your own organization. Before you step outside of yourself on the periphery to go to the margins and the boundaries, what's the culture of your own organization like? Have you done an audit of your own organizational climate to see if you're living out your own espoused values in your own cultural setting or organizational setting, because we all have work to do. And and that keeps us from, from the work that we're doing with communities outside of our own organizations, not grounded in a savior complex or a messiah complex, but recognizing that we all have equity work to do in different spaces. So those are a few things. It's a lot more complex than than what we can tackle in, in a fifty minute conversation. Yeah.
1: So you know, Donnell, again, I keep coming back to this notion that there's a responsibility of leaders of of systems, and in our schools in particular, who who are working so closely with with shaping this radical hope of the next generation and the world in which they they are going to inherit and lead themselves. There's there's this. There's this real call for them to have this deep consciousness and to remain forever curious about the possibility of the other, not just from a, an important statement, because I agree with you. I think I think these statements are really important because I love the intentionality of those. The next step from that intentionality is, of course, what you've just demonstrated so eloquently and given us so many examples there about the action. What's the rubber on the road? How, how are we going to do this in our lived practice? And we've got to do that by having a capacity to be self-reflective. And and I love the notion of the audit. One of the things that we do with a lot of the schools that we work with, Darnell, across the globe, and particularly Phil, who's a real skilled hand at that, he asks them to have a critical introspection around what they value. Mm -hmm. And he really challenges them then that ultimately that's going to form their value proposition, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And, And how do we help them understand what is sacred, but what's possible? There are a lot of people doing a lot of good work, though, in this space, yeah? And we're very blessed to have people like you on on, on Game Changers and so many of the individuals that we have on this show were intentional about its curation. They are individuals that are deeply curious. They are deeply compassionate. They have enormous courage. And they are people of, of conviction, which is really, really important too. These leaders that we're encountering on Game Changers from education, from industry, from social enterprise and so on. They lead communities that can often resist the transformation that's in front of us. That's already happened. How can school leaders handle that resistance to that transformational change so that we can continue to to have the aspiration of this radical hope?
2: Yeah, I, I love the idea of the values List and and what is sacred, and that's very similar to different protocols that I do with different organizations. And something like that is really important too. And it's making transparent and explicit so that we can see it. Is it a question of of skill or is it a question of will? Like mm-hmm. sometimes people just don't know how, mm-hmm. and and they just don't know what what folks are talking about when when they engage in this community work. But sometimes folks do know. And there's a myth of ignorance and it's Mm -hmm. they just don't want to. And they have a Mm -hmm. hidden commitment Mm -hmm. that oil exec knows that they're going to pollute the ocean, but they have a commitment to making those billions. So I think first it's identifying whether it's a question of knowledge and skill versus motivation and, and actual commitment, intrinsic commitment. And then I think there are different protocols and strategies that you can use with different leaders in different organizations. If it's a question of knowledge, that's the easy one. We have books for that. We have Google for that. We have external consultants for that. If it's a question of will, I think it's going back and, and seeing what these different resistors value and asking them, like, if you truly value this particular work or community engagement, how might you shift your actions to reflect those established values? And that's helpful. But there are some folks that are naysayers and resistors, and they just don't want to move. And I am one person as a consultant or a facilitator, and I am not going to expend all of my intellectual, emotional, physical labor, because sometimes getting on a plane and flying across the world is hard. I'm not going to exert all of my labor to move people who never wanted to move in in the first place. So I focus on the folks that are ready to go. If it's knowledge, you can easily change that. But I don't spend a whole lot of energy focusing on the naysayers and the resistors if they just don't have the motivation to move or they have those hidden commitments or that immunity to change. Thank you very much, Darnell. We talked about F-words earlier. I want to
0: pose three M-words to you now, if I can, to give us a little bit more of an insight about the work that you do in cultural transformation. Is there a model? Is there a methodology? And are there metrics that you use to show progress in cultural agility, cultural awareness, cultural transformation?
2: Yeah. I've worked with over 50 different schools in the last two and a half years probably more than that. The last I counted, it was 50. 50 schools and different organizations. And they're all different. Everyone has their different models of what they're trying to achieve. Everyone has a different methodology to assessing their needs as well as their growth. And everyone has different metrics to see if they've met, like solve some of the issues or the problems that they want to solve. So there is no checklist we have to be responsive to the like just as i said like the curriculum walks into the room when the students do the methodology and the model walks into the room and the organization does so everything is reflective of the organizations that i work with and it's co-constructed in partnership are there some go-tos that i go to yeah there's some models coach of the responsive uh, education coach of the responsive community building I use those models because they reflect my own ideology, but it's not always the best ideology or the framework for the schools that I work with. So that has to be co-constructed. Those philosophies and those values have to be co-constructed with the organization or the school. In regards to methodology, there are gap analyses that I use. If, If you're saying that you value this, and I'm seeing that the reality is that or this? Why is there a gap? How can we get you to reach your desired state from your current state? And what resources do you need? Some folks don't want to use a gap analysis because they're at different places. They may not have defined their values yet. And in regards to metrics, I think that also looks different. And I think those metrics need to be co-constructed with organizations. I like to use an MTSS model, a multi-tiered systems of support model that says, hey, if, if you want to achieve this, 80% of the people within your organization or school community should be demonstrating this knowledge or should be motivated in this way. And if they're not, here are some interventions to work with smaller groups or individuals to move them along. But I also want to be careful not to have a one-size-fits-all metric. I talked earlier about our assessments being culturally responsive. Our metrics need to also be responsive to the communities that we work with because we can't just have a one-size-fits-all model because organizations are so different and idiosyncratic. I feel like that's a cop-out answer. But if you give me a case study about how I would tackle particular issue i would happily co-construct some metrics with you and show you how we can reach your desired state or your desired outcomes
0: no i don't think that's a a cop-out at all what you just explained there it's the whole point of what you're talking about (laughs) is that that you're not imposing a model from some position of scholarly privilege or cultural privilege you're not seeing and saying i'm coming to you knowing better than you do and said you're sitting there and saying how do we join up our storylines how do we kick it on forward i think it's really really important though to hear the way in which you do that so that people understand that there is there is a deep expertise that goes with this sort of stuff because the common critique around this is that this is just political or ideological fluff and stuff and etc cetera, etc cetera, and there isn't a rigor to this sort of work and of course there's a deep deep rigor to all of this work you know i, I was listening to you earlier when you were talking about the importance of inquiry as the basis of a pedagogy. It's the second biggest argument in education on Twitter is is, are the content people versus the inquiry people, you know, in education as though one or the other is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The key to it is that if you go into it saying, well, this is better than that because of this, then you're missing the point about the inquiry, which is that if we don't ask people questions, they can't find their own voice. Mm -hmm. They can't Find a way to tell their story and, as you said, co construct a narrative that goes forward. No private to you. Love the work that you do, man. It's fantastic. Final question for me before I hand over to the art teacher to finish off <laughs> a slightly different tangent. What is your personal sense of the future? How do you see yourself
2: evolving as a person and as an educator? Phil, I've been trying very much to live in the present and. These past several years, I've been incredibly future-oriented, and I think there's also value in looking back at my past and being a bit more past-oriented. I'm not supposed to be here right now. Like, based on the systems that i survived, based on the circumstances that I overcome, I'm surprised that I'm in the position that I'm in, and I get to do the work of working with students and working with teachers and working with other leaders. So I feel very fortunate just to be living in the present right now, engaging in this work. So I have no aspirations and and I'm not looking too far in the future, but I am looking back at my past and saying, wow, this is cause for celebration. Like, wow, like I've overcome that and I'm here right now in the eternal now. And and that's the kind of headspace that I'm in right now. I have hope that the world will be a better place. I don't know where I'm situated in that work. I have hope that schools will be more equitable and schools will be more culturally responsive. I, I hope that organizations are aspiring to do that. But right now, I'm just kind of taking a break from the productivity culture. I'm taking a break from always being on and, and thinking about how to change the landscape of international education and just taking a step back and just living in the moment. And it's felt liberating. It's it's helped me not dream of labor, but really dream of kind of like how I want to feel tomorrow. So I guess if, if I am thinking about the future, I wanna feel good I want to feel joy. I want to feel purpose. And I want everyone who comes from a historically marginalized, minoritized background that has traditionally not felt joy and purpose to also feel that way. And eventually, I will get into the headspace where I'm thinking about transforming systems and international education again. But these last several months, just living in the present and living in the moment has allowed me to be more attentive to the people who are right in front of me and the issues that they're bringing to me every single day.
1: I'm going to ask you the final question before I respond to what you just have shared with us and wrap our conversation up. This is a question that we've actually asked every guest in this series. If you only had 280 characters to tweet
2: a definition of leadership or leading, what would it be? That's a great question. Leadership is leading with and sometimes getting out of the way. And I I think sometimes we have a very hierarchical perspective of of leadership where it has to be top down and not necessarily side by side. And sometimes we need to flatten the hierarchy if we're truly going to guide and facilitate professional learning for the people that we lead. It's not just a mandate or a dictate. It's not just you do this. It's like, how might we work together? Uh, because ultimately, we the people we lead, we want them to do that with our students. We want them to be facilitators and coaches and mentors for our students. And we have to model that as leaders. It can't be so autocratic where we lose sight of our democratic values. And sometimes it's just getting out of the way. I, I think a good leader says, here are the desired states and the desired results, And the vehicle you use to get there is up to you. And I'm going to get out of the way and I'm learning and I'm still learning to do this. So if there's someone who's listening and said yesterday, you didn't get out of my way. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes like I give too much input and I'm learning to not be such a pack rat with the resources that I have and saying, hey, you're not asking for input. You're getting what you need. Sometimes it's like someone asked me for advice. And in the midst of the conversation, they put up a hand and they're saying, I got what I need. I need you to get out of the way. So for me, I, w- I would say that leadership is leading with and sometimes getting out of the way. And that requires leaders to decentralize themselves at times and flatten the hierarchy. And that can be scary. You're, you're spot on there because it's again, it's again, actually
1: inviting a leader into the place of that boundary, going to that boundary and being and stepping over into that discomfort zone where they are, no longer operating from a position of compliance and control, where those things have some value in our school Mm communities because we, we are protecting young people and that should be sacrosanct. I get that. But, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that give people the permission to lean into their own possibility.
2: Beautiful. That, yeah. that, I think, is shorter than what I was saying in 280 <laughs> characters. <laughs> sure. And, and do you know what? That's the first
0: time Adriano's ever been able to say something that succinctly as well. Today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow.
1: Well, that's the that's the pot calling the kettle black. Anyway, Darnell, I just want to say thank you. We've got a bit of a back channel going on during this conversation because we always like to reflect as this conversation is going to help shape our next question. And Phil shared in, in that back chat the joy of meeting you. And our encounter with you today has been deeply thoughtful and constructive. I share those sentiments. I feel that we have just had a masterclass on the profoundness of reflection. And this notion of being hope-filled is about the construct of what's possible. I love what you shared there to Phil's response towards the end about the power of now yeah, yeah, sure, we should every now and then get up on the balcony and take the broader perspective of things and, and look at that horizon about what's possible. But sometimes we just need to savor those, those moments, those moments that are happening around us right now, because they are pretty serendipitous in so many occasions. I want to thank you for being a radical optimist. It's been an empowering conversation, deeply enlightening, and my day has started with joy. So thank
0: you.